You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of The Redemption of Thinking by Rudolf Steiner. This is Appendix 5, entitled The Philosophy of Spiritual Activity. See note page 106 of this book. It is fundamental to the understanding of this book to realize the background out of which it arose. It was not really the result of philosophic speculation or of acute psychological induction. It arose from the very exceptional nature of Rudolf Steiner's personality which colored the whole of his life's work and everything which he wrote. From his earliest childhood he had a fully conscious and unbroken experience of supersensible reality to which he found himself almost everywhere to which he found almost everyone else was blind. At the same time he had a keen intellect and excelled in school and university in both scientific and philosophical studies. Even from his boyhood his mind was bent on one aim, the discovery of the relationship between the world of reality which he shared with others and that which he alone experienced. When he was about eighteen years old, it happened to him that in deep meditation upon a pure thought, that is one not derived from sense experience, he found that the thought expressed itself in an image as vivid as those given in the act of sense perception. In this way he discovered in thought the bridge between the worlds of sense and spirit, and in repeated meditations he confirmed his discovery. He perceived, moreover, that in thinking man was engaged in his essential activity as a spirit being. The great task that then confronted him was to convey these discoveries to others in forms of thought with which they were familiar in their ordinary physical consciousness. For they were all ignorant of, and for the most part entirely skeptical about, the existence of any supersensible reality. It was to achieve this aim that title The Philosophy of Spiritual Activity was written. It approaches the subject from the standpoint of ordinary human consciousness, by an analysis of the process of human knowledge and of the nature of thinking itself, and by a criticism of the various theories of knowledge which have been advanced. Its presuppositions are those of ordinary human experience, and it makes no demands on the reader except for an intelligent and unprejudiced study of the process of human perception and thinking. It is, however, important to realize that its conclusions are a revelation of what to the author were matters of actual experience. When Steiner says, page 106, that in our knowledge, quote, we split the world in two, close quote, he is referring to the obvious fact that what we know about any object, say, a rose, comes in part from sense impressions of color and scent and touch, which come to us from without, and, partly, from thinking about those sense impressions which appear to come from within. (laughs) For example, the many facts about the rose, its particular name, its botanical relationships, 
its useful purposes, its literary or romantic associations, all these are arrived at by thinking. Clearly, however, we cannot always make a clear distinction when we see an object between that which we perceive with our senses and that which we derive from our thinking. The reason for this is that perceived objects reach us already clothed with the conclusions of past thought. If I were shown a rose, I could say at once, that is a rose, and perhaps give it its right name. But if an untraveled Eskimo saw a rose, he might have no idea what it was. Yet he would have the same impressions of color, scent, and touch that I have. It is only the bare sensations of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch that really reach us through our senses. And these sensations do not reveal real objects until we begin to think about them. We may find a rough illustration of this in those newspaper competitions in which we are given a drawing or photograph of an object, or a part of it, from a very unusual angle, and have to say what it is. At first it strikes our vision as an unrecognizable association of lines. We then have to apply our thoughts, and often with great effort. Suddenly we see, quote, what it is, close quote. The object acquires for us reality. We arrive at reality, quote, by our act, activity of thought, close quote. Some of the relationships discoverable by thought are found in the perceptible image of the object itself, but most of them consist of relationships between the object and other objects, which are not apparent in the object as it manifests to the senses. For example, the scientific facts about the object. When a botanist looks at a flower, it has a far more extensive reality for him than it has for the ordinary man, though perhaps not so vital and intensive a reality as it has for a poet. The sum total of its relationships co constitutes the full reality of the object. In one sense, then, we, quote-unquote, attach our thoughts, our ideas to our sense impressions in order to arrive at reality. In actual fact, however, it is wrong to speak of them as our ideas, as though they had originated in us quite independently. We cannot attach any idea of ours that we like to an object and make it a reality. I cannot say of a lark, quote, that is a bird of prey, and attach that idea to the lark. Our ideas are discovered by our thinking. But they are, in fact, the, quote, thought relationships, close quote, which belong to or are inherent in the object. We perceive thought relationships through our thinking, just as we perceive colors through our eye. Yet, as we shall see, there is a clear distinction between these two modes of perception. The reason why we speak of ideas as our ideas is because they seem to arise out of our own minds, and we are able to retain them within our minds when the object to which they relate is no longer directly apparent to our senses. When, however, we seek to form again a mental image of the object we have seen, the image lacks the vividness of sense perception, and it seems to us to consist merely of ideas which appear to be a shadowy and insubstantial element that we have, quote, abstracted, close quote, from the object. The truth is that in his dependence, in his physical consciousness, upon the senses, for the elements of form and color in objects, 
the thinker cannot adequately clothe his ideas with those details, and the image appears shadowy and unreal. Rudolf Steiner, however, knew from his own experience that in supersensible perception this is not the case. His innate powers of spirit perception had always presented him with realities as vivid as those of sense perception. Now the fact that man's activity in thought is shadowy and unreal, compared with spirit experience, is, as we shall see shortly, because he lives in a, quote, separated, close quote, physical consciousness, in which perception is separated from thinking. The purpose of this is that by his activity of thinking in this separated consciousness, he may become self-conscious and self-directed. Steiner refers to this when he says, page 108, quote, I should never have attained self-consciousness had I not, by the way in which I entered the world, divided the world of ideas from the world of perception. Close quote. Let us consider this a little further. In his autobiography, The Story of My Life, Rudolf Steiner tells us, in the development of his own innate powers of sense perception, he, quite early, came to the actual discovery that there was a radical difference between the knowledge attainable in spirit consciousness and knowledge in physical consciousness. In spirit consciousness, knowledge and experience are united. Quote, you know in experiencing and you experience in knowing. Close quote. The fundamental principle of knowledge in the supersensible world is that of interpenetration. The knower enters into the being of that which he knows and, as it were, shares its very being and its knowledge of itself. Knowledge and experience are achieved together. It is a knowledge far deeper, far more revealing than earthly knowledge. St. Paul says of it, quote, Then shall I know, even as also I am known, close quote, when he breaks off in his wonderful hymn on Christian love to enter a peon on spiritual knowledge. Those who have had even a momentary experience of it realize the penetrating completeness of such a, a knowledge. Footnote, quote, when Goethe was confronted by the botanical system of Linnaeus, he felt that the ordinary objective mode of cognition, which can, be use, which can usefully be applied to the mineral kingdom, is not adequate for the study of plant life. Close quote Rudolf Steiner title, The Mystery of the Trinity. End of footnote. On the other hand, in this condition of interweaving and intermingling of beings, it would be very difficult for any being who had not already, who had not already self-consciousness, to acquire it. Now, one of the chief purposes of man's earthly life, a purpose whose evolution can be traced in human history, is the acquisition of full self-consciousness, and thus the main principle of earthly consciousness, in contrast to the interpenetration of the spirit world is that of separateness. That this is so, we can see in many ways. Our time experience is sharply separated into past, present and future. Our spatial experience is separated in that two material bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And that we cannot at will alter the spatial conditions in which we find ourselves. So too in the conscious experience of the physical world, as we have seen, Sense perception and thinking are separated. The fact that objects seem to impress themselves upon us from without, and that our thinking 
about them seems to come from within ourselves creates the idea of subject and object, which is the basis of self-consciousness. There is yet another result of this separated consciousness in which our knowledge of the world is split into sense perception and thinking. Between these two modes of perception there is a clear distinction. It is this. The sense impressions of the objects through our senses reach us without any will activity on our own part. In fact, unless we occlude our senses, shut our eyes or stop our ears or hold our nose, we cannot escape the sense impressions. But the knowledge that is gained by thinking is achieved only by our own activity. In fact, if we refuse to exercise the activity of thinking, our sense impressions will convey to us no knowledge of the reality of that which we are observing. And if we limit our activity of thinking, we limit our knowledge. In these lectures on scholastic philosophy, Steiner shows that the realization by man that thoughts arise in himself when an object is brought to his notice by sense impressions, and that he can develop thought indefinitely, has played the greatest part in the evolution of his ego-consciousness. He also shows that in this process man has arrived at certain false conclusions. Number one, he identifies his ego entirely with its manifestation in physical consciousness. Number two, he regards thinking in its apprehension of reality as entirely limited to the objects of physical experience. Three, he either limits reality to these objects, rationalism, or declares that any other reality cannot be reached by thinking, and thus sets limits to knowledge, agnosticism. It is this perversion of human thinking which Steiner in these lectures declares to be in need of redemption, and he points out the possibilities of great advance in human knowledge through spiritual science by the development of supersensible experience. In the philosophy of spiritual activity itself, as Steiner himself tells us, see page 110, no reference is made to either of these conclusions. He limits himself to showing by a clear examination of normal human consciousness that thinking is not a material process nor in its essence dependent upon man's physical organism. He shows as against Kantianism that human knowledge as arrived at by perception and thinking is a direct knowledge of reality and that the process of human knowledge is a fundamental factor in the spiritual evolution of humanity. It was for this reason that Steiner continually taught that the path of true scientific thinking is the true path for man back to his heritage as a spirit being. He shows, moreover, that thinking must not be limited to physical phenomena, and that the development of pure thinking will lead to higher levels of knowledge and moral attainment. The end of Appendix 5